Alice Mumford arrived in Edinburgh after studying at university in Cardiff 12 years ago. She's long been involved in campaigning for climate justice, peace and equality, something that brought her into the Scottish Green Party. She spent a lot of time here in Portie. Her work for a national women's equality charity operated from a base at Tribe and she's also an enthusiastic open water swimmer. Earlier this year she ran out a campaign to highlight all that needs to be done to make Edinburgh a city that works for everyone. She describes her new role as councillor as an exciting adventure and a steep learning curve. However, she's frustrated by the bureaucracy and the time taken to get things done. And she's also, as we'll hear, frustrated that the reality of being a councillor is that of being in what is officially a part-time job and facing up to the fact that it's really a full-time job on part-time pay. So, for the past six months, she's continued working for that women's charity, as well as for the council, something which is now coming to an end, but she fully admits it's been hard to juggle both. That's been the biggest challenge. So being a councillor is supposed to be a part-time job. That's what Cosler says. It's paid as a part-time job. And yet it is, I found, very, very difficult to do as a part-time job. It really is the kind of thing where you get meetings put in at 6pm for 9am the next morning. How anyone with care and responsibilities copes with this. How anyone who can't afford to work on one salary. And I've, I'm you know, hoping I'll be able to get some freelance work to actually allow, allow me to focus more on the council work and, and leave my other job. One of my passions is, is around equal representation of women, of people of colour, of disabled people. And... The first six months in council have really shown me why councils across Scotland are filled with, you know, retired men for the most part, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly non-disabled. And it's because it's incredibly challenging to do this role in a, in a way that feels fulfilling and well. If you don't have other sources of income, if you don't have a partner, if you don't have the free time that's required to do it. And remember, you know, there's the role of a councillor in terms of going to committees and full council, that's all in the day. I'm sure I will get better at this, but, you know, learning to guard your time, to understand what you can most usefully do, which meetings are going to be helpful for you in your role as a local representative. Um, and all those things has been, yeah, a real eye-opener, I think, and, and definitely definitely confirms some of the, the reasons that, that, you know, councils were made by a certain group of people and continue to be run for the most part by a certain group of people without these considerations about, you know, would well, you also need to be on universal credit to do this role? You know, what are the additional expenses of being a councillor? So, I mean, even, even small things, advertising your surgeries, you know, councillors for the most part are expected to pay for that themselves. All these things that, that sort of go you know, part and parcel of, I think, being a good councillor are additional expenses. And that's the reason why lots of people are blocked out from, from this work, which means we have worse decisions. You know, it means we have a council that doesn't represent everyone that lives in Edinburgh, which is a shame. Now, you're a member of, I think it's called the Policy and Sustainability Committee? Yes. I keep on wondering just how sustainable <laughs> the City of Edinburgh Council actually is. <laughs> when it says sustainability, it means around finances, it means around continuing to operate and provide services. But it also does cover the sustainability that lots of listeners might think of, so environmental sustainability. It covers those things as well, and climate change is a big part of that work. As we're recording this, I'm preparing for a policy and sustainability committee where all of the papers around climate change and how the council's doing are coming to that and... We're just about hitting the targets, but the reason we're hitting the targets is because we've had two years of a pandemic. Um, and that's a really sort of damning indictment because really we should be massively exceeding carbon emission targets, certainly because of the two years of the pandemic. And nobody wants to celebrate hitting targets that have come because we've all had a pretty horrendous two years. 
Everyone's learned the language of climate change. They've learned how to talk about it and say they care about it. But when it actually comes to spending the money, when it comes to, to not doing certain things because of the, the climate change implications, the political will just isn't there and it can feel a little bit like shouting into a void. There's, there's brilliant officers working on this. I, I genuinely believe lots of people have got really good intentions, but yeah, when it comes down to the brass tacks and, you know, from November to February, so much in the council is about budgets. That's the end point, really. It's the brass tacks, you know, it's put your money where your mouth is and let's have that investment in, in sustainability that we need and it remains to be seen if that will happen. We are probably going to see squeezing of budgets happening over the the next few months, whether from Westminster or Holyrood. Mm -hmm. That's going to place an an awful lot of pressure on the council and councillors. I mean, there's no sort of bones about it. It's a really, really scary situation. Edinburgh is facing a significant budget deficit. There's rules around how our budgets have to be balanced. The vast majority of council spending we can't really touch because it's it's what is the everyday duties of council. So, you know, the delivering of services, housing, transport, all of those sorts of things. And that's already allocated. That's officers that have decided that. So we're sort of tweaking at the edges really of things. But there will absolutely be things that we can no longer provide. All the services are having to make cutbacks. And in terms of some of the, you know, projects and things that the councillors maybe talk about won't be happening. And for me, this, you know, this goes back to my core passions and what I ran on, which is climate change and equality. Those are both things that require significant investment now, well, 30 years ago, but, you know, now to make the changes we need to see. And those are the sort of things, because it's such a reactive budget and because we're in a, you know, a cost of living crisis. And of course... We're not going to be removing funding from anything that is, you know, people that are requiring money to put food on the table, to heat their houses. It it feels like those are the choices and they are. We have to be doing both of those things. So we absolutely need to be investing in climate change adaptations, in, you know, retrofitting all these things. We have to be investing in making our active travel routes better. And we can't just say, well, for the next year, we're only going to spend money on, on X or Y and ignore this. sort of. We're just pushing the problem further down the road. And when we're talking about climate change, that's already a problem that is going to be felt hardest by the younger generation. So we're just sort of piling up those problems. And I think, for me, the overall solutions are to give local authorities more power to to raise revenue. That won't happen this year, so we're doing what we can. And some of those things are happening at Holyrood, but certainly for the Greens, we come at it from a point of view of anti-austerity and anti-cuts. And so it feels very horrible to be in the position of saying, well, there's going to be, you know, there are going to be cuts. So yeah, it's going to be a really challenging time. I'm the economy spokes sort of person for our group. So I sit on the finance and resources committee. I'm sort of, you know, heading all of these figures and trying to work this stuff out. And of course, I'm, I'm a Scottish Green, which means my party is now in government along with the SNP, which makes it very difficult in some ways because people can say, well, it's we're not getting the money from Hollywood. And I would agree. And so there's also doing some work, you know, A, to say, Decisions Holyrood are making are better because there's Greens in government. We're seeing that with um, increased social security payments, for example, um, and the Just Transition Fund. But at the same time, I'm saying to my party, local authorities are on their knees here. You need to be doing something. You need to be sorting out council tax. You need to be, you know, pushing these things through and we need a bigger settlement. And it is happening, but it, it takes time. You mentioned the need to retrofit. I believe you were probably at the heat fair. I was, yes. Isn't the danger, though, of an event like that, that you're largely preaching to the converted? Of course, when you're talking about this, we're going to be talking to people that 
are already to a certain extent converted even if they're not in the choir but that doesn't mean that it's not important because that stuff is not happening i think we still need to be talking to the converted because even the converted aren't doing enough we've spent a l too much time telling people to change their lives rather than telling governments to change their policies but in this instance actually that is something that people you know people that own homes people that are part of housing associations should be doing this stuff and a, a road like that that empowers people to get involved in community energy you know i was talking to the tool library here at the starting there with the retro fixers which is such an exciting initiative you know and it it brings together all the brilliant aspects of, of this sort of community action so upskilling getting people to meet new people improving people's houses and improving those people that don't have the resources to do it themselves going out into the community and and helping people looking at what are the barriers to people doing this and not just saying why haven't you retrofitted your home yet or you know don't you care about the planet it's about saying how can we work with you you know is it about talking to, to a neighbor that's installed a heat pump is it about discussing how to talk about conservation areas and, and the legal advice there and so you know people might be converted to the cause but not necessarily to the action so yeah i, I thought it was a really exciting event and we, we absolutely needed to be doing it from both those angles the top down and bottom up with part of this ward we are not talking about the kind of comfortable people like in, mm -hmm. in Portobello and, and, and Joppa. They are yeah. facing that. And they're also facing the situation where the council budget is going to be cut. It's a really tricky situation for them. The state of repair of council-owned housing is, is bad like in many, many places, and, and we need to be doing much more to improve that, both just for people's basic living standards, but also obviously to reduce emissions, reduce energy costs. And I don't think it's an either-or. Most wards in Edinburgh are explicitly designed, and I think rightly so, that there are there's a range of areas in there and, and the work of doing Craig Miller and, and Nidri is vitally important and it's, it is at a different stage in many ways when we're talking about retrofitting that's when I say right I need to talk to my colleagues in the council to say what are we doing with the tower blocks you know and how are we helping people in housing associations you know I don't think the fact that there are people who badly need support from the council should negate the fact that there are people who don't need that support and should be doing these things off their own back I would also say that it's you know we often like to say well you know you've got Portage Opera and then you've got Craig Miller and Nidri in UK Hall, but there are people in Portobello that are really struggling as well. Even within Portobello, there are huge mixed incomes, which is what makes it such a great place to be because we don't want to see sort of people siloed into certain areas of living. But I also think there's a, there's a risk in saying, well, everyone in Portobello is fine because they aren't. People are, can be really, really struggling here as well. Just out of curiosity, one of the things that I remember Maureen Child telling me years ago was just how closely the four councillors we're collaborating over a whole range of issues. Is that beginning to happen now? It is, yeah. And I think, so I was very, very lucky in that I've, I've taken over from Mary Campbell, who was a brilliant counsellor. And yeah, she said the same. And one of the things she'd really valued about, about um, her role was working really closely. And obviously we've got three new counsellors and Kate is the continuing counsellor. So, you know, we're friendly with each other, but also looking at some very specific things. So looking at, um, we're about to have a meeting around youth work in Nidri, which is something we all care about quite a lot and there have been issues with, so bringing together. We also will come along to the community council and meet up beforehand to, to talk about the key issues. I think we all appreciate that we all got elected in the ward to try and help and try and do the best thing. Um, and we have very different opinions sometimes about how to do that. Portobello Craig Miller as a ward is quite interesting in the council that we have four councillors from different parties. That's quite unusual. We have to sort of collaborate across those lines. So we can't assume, you know, anything about what people might want in the area. It helps 
have that understanding about engaging with the community in consultation and those sorts of things. You know, things around issues around the, the problems that we see in the summer. It's very obvious to anyone that we need some solutions again. Something that I think you uh, touched on when we were emailing each other, and it's something that's actually very regularly on, say, 40 people or or Twitter, is the problem of road junctions and cyclists. Mm -hmm. And I think someone we both know was knocked off her bike not so very long Mm -hmm. ago. There doesn't seem to be an easy solution to this. There's easy solutions to say and less easy solutions to implement, and the easy solution to say is we need to significantly drastically reduce the number of cars on the road and the behavior of those cars on the road and that that for me is is the end point of that out with that we absolutely need to rethink the way we design everything that's a big challenge so there's a couple of you know specific junctions and because there have been fatalities and serious accidents there it means there's a little bit more pressure on, on getting a solution to this and saying look we have to be putting active travel solutions at the heart of this. We have to be putting people's safety at the heart of that. And we are seeing some really interesting and exciting plans around those junctions. Again, there's stuff that takes time. And I think that, again, Kate said this in your episode with her, you know, the, the time it takes to get things done. So looking at junctions will initially be putting an interim solution, but even that has to have consultation. It has to have a certain statutory requirement. Of, and then we look at the medium-term solutions and then we look at the long-term solutions and that's very difficult to even as a councillor to sort of understand and and much less sort of on porty people where yes you can just see this was an awful junction they've just made it worse you know (laughs) which I I fully you know appreciate why people feel that way cycle safety we've all like everyone I know has had close passes in in Mrs in Portobello we need segregated cycle lanes absolutely we need junctions to be designed with not just cyclists but anyone who isn't a car in mind we need this radical shift and other places have done it and that's what i find really frustrating is that it doesn't have to be this way you know one thing i saw recently which is from cardiff mm-hmm. what the council is experimenting there is where you have a, a junction where the highway code says that a pedestrian has right of way they're putting zebra crossings across that I can imagine some people feel like that's a waste because, you know, well, of course, people have right of way. Why do you need to write it on the road? But clearly we do need to write it on the road. I mean, Cardiff's a really interesting example. I went to university in Cardiff and it looks totally different because they have really, really invested in pedestrianising it. It's, it's great. So there's more pedestrianised streets. There's many, many dro- more dropped curbs. There's segregated cycle lanes. It feels like a different city. One of the things we're, we're talking about with the 20-minute neighbourhood team, you can't really implement a 20-minute neighbourhood in one place because... If other people are living in a an hour neighbourhood, they need to pass through your 20-minute neighbourhood to get to, to the fort or wherever they're going. So part of this has to be about a holistic change and not just picking an individual road to look at and change that, but, you know, having this, this vision. You know, not just Portobello, Edinburgh looks like um, in the future. So sometimes these ideas will have been thought of and sometimes the answer that comes back when you ask a thing is, oh, yeah, we, we did think about that four years ago. Here's a 79-page report about why this part parking place has to remain where it is we do need to be bold we need to think about these ideas we need to decide what's the end point so we're not just dealing with a road we should be saying why are people needing or feeling the need to get in cars and go on this particular road go in a road at all where are they going do we make sure there's childcare nearer to home could we make sure that there's a different route they take thinking about these things in the round and i 40 people is 40 people but like it is sometimes great to get these ideas and actually be like oh you know what like maybe no one's ever asked that question maybe no one's made that suggestion or maybe it's even the sort of thing that you know that the phrase like everyone thinks this 
Maybe everyone thinks it, but has anyone actually sent the email to the one person that has control over, you know, over that thing or found out who that person is and what their email address is? And of course, one of the things that's causing a lot of consternation is the whole issue of uh, pavement parking. Yes. This is one of my big bugbears. Anyone that sees my Twitter will know that I like calling out pavement parkers. It can't come soon enough, the power to enforce this from Holyrood. I'm really pleased it's happening. It's a particularly live issue in Portobello because we have narrow streets and people parking on the pavements to, to have access to their houses. Um, I was really pleased. I went to the, you know, the community council organised meeting about this, and you know, the room was was overwhelmingly in favour of a controlled parking zone and of the ban on pavement parking. And it's because it it's an issue of equality and access and safety. And I think these are the things that everyone can understand. You know, when you buy a property, you don't buy the road outside it. You certainly don't buy the pavement outside it. Again, I know that both Jane and Kate said the same and it's because it's a universal experience of walking down Marlborough Street or whatever, having to walk in the middle of the road. It's awful. You know, sometimes when they close off streets for street parties and things and they or they all road works and they make the cars move, it can be wonderful to sort of stand in that street and look around and be like, Why isn't this like it always? You know, so um yeah, I'm I just I'm a big fan of the pavement parking ban, bring it on. Another thing that concerns us here, I mean, where we live we're looking out on the prom. And I do cycle on the prom, but I get concerned about some cyclists thinking it's a racetrack. How can we get the balance right between cyclists and pedestrians? Yeah, so I mean, I think, ultimately, I think we need a safe cycle route, which to me might well look like a segregated cycle lane on the high street which might be about making the high street one way doing something else to enable that infrastructure to sit there so that cyclists can have a safe route well how do you know can we widen the prom can we show of the prom being public land but a lot of it being taken up by private industry um in terms of tables and chairs which you know i like i love the feel of the prom it's great but we do need to have that question about you know how do we use this space that belongs to all of us and whether it's selfish cyclists so you know thinking it's a racetrack whether it is dog owners running leads across the path we need to decide actually who gets priority here but there's also no signs on the prom that say cyclists you are allowed to be here but please be responsible you probably have half the population thinking cyclists are not allowed on the prom which is not true you have half the pop- uh, you know, population of cyclists. I have a right to be here, so I'm going to cycle the way I want. You know, And actually what we need is compromise, and that comes both from, from people. Just go slow. Pedestrians have right of way here, cyclists. Use some common sense. You know, If you want to cycle in a group of eight people you know, in high-vis and lycra, crack on, great, do that on the high street, because you're not going to be as much, da- as much danger from cars. You're going quickly, you're much more visible, you're in a big group. Yeah, I think we need the long-term infrastructure changes, but I also think just a little bit of... Um, uh, a little bit of signage, a little bit of common sense um, wouldn't go astray either. <laughs> How do you deal with... Uh, I mean, I've spoken to one person who told me, I look out at the sea, the sea levels aren't rising. <laughs> What's the problem? You know, the winter we're having at the minute, and I'm we're recording this as it started to get a little bit colder, but we've been having 15 degrees at night in November. Is evidence that people can see with their eyes. You know, I think there is a problem about people not believing science in general, and yes, there's there's facts and figures and all these things you can show people. I've certainly spoken to a lot of people that have always felt our climate change is probably real, 
But after the, the wildfires we've seen across Europe, after what we've seen, you know, the, the grass in Princess Street are actually beginning to worry about it. You know, I think that shift is happening, you know, and I've been, cha- you know, chatting to people, you know, not in sort of green circles. So the, you know, the, the sort of taxi driver test, a lot of people call it. It's brought up all the time now of, pe- of people being worried about this and what are we going to do about this? And it's the challenge of our time. Now, again, as I said earlier, that doesn't mean people are necessarily you know, making the decisions that we need to be making in terms of the council. But I, I suppose I remain hopeful that people are seeing those changes. I, you know, I, I don't want it to get worse before people understand what's happening, but it will. We're, we're there, you know, all of the stuff that, again, when I first learned about climate change in school and started the green team um, in my class, because I was a geek, you know, all those things we were told about are now happening and that is impossible to ignore. We're actually past some of the tipping point. We absolutely are. And, and that's, you know, one of the things we're looking at council is, is obviously we want to stop climate change. We want to stop fossil fuel use. Absolutely. We want to invest in low carbon technologies, all these things. But we're also now having to look at mitigation um, and adaptation plans. And that's something, I mean, maybe that's where we'll see the shift, because when people start realising it's difficult to get insurance, because insurers are realising this is going to happen, fire risk is increasing, flood risk is increasing, when we're beginning to say to developers, hey, if you want to build in Seafield, what are you doing about climate change? Because the tide's going to come up the beach. What are you doing about that? When we're embedding these decisions in everything we do and we're saying, look, you want to build this road? How about the climate impact of that? Um, How are you going to cope with the extreme weather that we know is only going to get worse in summer? Maybe that's what will finally start making the shift. People changing, you know, people having to change their plans and their lives because we know that runaway climate change is is here and is only going to worsen unless we pull our finger out. (laughs) I want to bring this to a close now. You've been in office for the past, what, six months? What do you hope to have achieved in the next, uh, what, four and a half years? That's a really scary question. I want to see changes. The everyday lives of people in Portobello, because we've changed the fabric of it. I'm talking about Portobello because we're on the Porty podcast, but obviously I mean that for the whole ward. I want the high street to look very different. I want cycling to be the majority transport within Portobello. I want to see the houses in Craig Miller massively improved and the tenants getting instant responses to when they're complaining about things. I want to see people happier in their lives and I suppose I'm thinking almost not knowing what the council's doing to make that happen. So I was asked this at the heat fair, you know, what what will heat look like in 10 years time or what will people's heating look like? And I was like, I want people to not have to know. I want people to be empowered to get involved in things if they want to. I'll be meeting the fourth member of the team on the Portobello Craig Miller Award, Tim Jones for the Conservatives, shortly. And that's it for this week. A reminder that if you have an idea about something that could make an interesting episode, then please get in touch either through social media or by email to the podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.